Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In December of 1990, the Tita family was on break from their hectic lives up at their remote country cabin in Oakley, Utah. Rolf and Kay, along with their two daughters, Lene and Trisha, were busily preparing for their annual Christmas party, when suddenly, their tranquility was shattered by two cold-hearted intruders. The aftermath would haunt the Titas for years to come. Join me now as we look into the terror a close-knit family endured on a chilly winter day in 1990. You'll learn about the strength of family bonds, the power of a father's love, and the Tita's family's quest for justice. You'll also discover how they managed to rebuild both their peaceful getaway and their family spirit. Tita was born on September 29, 1939, in Germany, and immigrated to the U.S. with his mother when he was only 11. His life underwent another big change when he met Kay Tidwell in his early 20s. Kay was a couple of years younger than Ralph and was from White Pine County, Nevada. The pair fell in love and got married on May 24th. 1963, in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Titas were known for their strong faith and were active members in their church. They also looked forward to having a large family one day. When years of marriage passed without any children, the couple decided to adopt. First, they welcomed a daughter named Lene into the family. Three years later, they adopted their son, Sean, Within a few weeks of adopting Sean, Kay discovered she was two months pregnant, a baby girl they named Trisha. The Tita family finally had the large family they dreamed of. The family 
eventually relocated from Salt Lake City to Humboldt, Texas, leading a happy and busy life. Rolf was a successful businessman in commercial laundry solutions. He opened up Skyline Equipment Incorporated in 1969 in nearby Houston, Texas. Kay was a devoted mother to her three children. Her friend said she'd give up anything for them. They also considered her the perfect friend because she'd never pass judgment on anyone. The Titas regularly visited their remote family cabin to vacation and reconnect with one another and extended family. The cabin was located in Oakley, Utah, a small town with a population of only 600 people back in the 1990s. The cabin was tucked back two and a half miles from the main road and was so isolated it could only be reached by snowmobile in the winter. Kay called their country escape Tita's Tranquility because it was isolated by a picturesque river, surrounded by towering aspen trees, and not a neighbor in sight. In the winter of 1990, the Titas made their usual trek from Texas to the cabin for the holidays. On December 20th, Kay and Sean flew in, and Kay's sister Claudia picked them up from the airport. Rolf, Lene, and Trisha planned to arrive the following day. The couple always traveled separately with one or two of their children. That way, if anything ever happened during a trip, there'd be at least one parent to take care of the children. Kay, Claudia, and Sean headed from the airport up to the cabin. They were eager to unpack, settle in, and start the preparations for their annual Christmas party. When they reached the iron gate to the property, they parked the car by the garage where the snowmobiles were kept and bundled up for their ride to the cabin in the brisk minus 20 degree weather. After loading up the snowmobiles with supplies, they set off. About halfway to the cabin, they passed a young man walking along the trail wearing a light jacket, Levi jeans, and tennis shoes. Kay stopped to ask him if he needed any help after she noticed he wasn't dressed for the weather. But he ignored her and quickly walked away out of sight. Unsettled by the encounter, they continued up to the cabin. Once they arrived, Kay and Sean unpacked and Claudia agreed to spend the night. After a nice dinner together, in a lively catch-up session, they all turned in for the night. The following day, Ralph arrived with 22-year-old Lene and 16-year-old Trisha. Within minutes of their arrival, Kay told Ralph about a man they'd met on their way up to the cabin. Concerned, she asked him to grab the guns out of the car. Kay told Ralph that the young man didn't belong. He was strange. Ralph assured her everything was fine. In the 1990s, that area was far from a hotbed of crime. In almost a century, they'd only had a handful of property crimes and only one non-fatal road rage shooting. Kay's sister Claudia described life in Oakley as void of surprises as a sheet of graph paper. But in this case, Kay hadn't been convinced. She had a bad feeling about the young man. 
and when Kay didn't take no for an answer, Ralph finally gave in and got the guns out of the vehicle and put them in the snowmobile so they were close by. Claudia then headed home because she had some errands to run before traveling back to the cabin for the Christmas party. After she left, the Titas relaxed and decorated the cabin together. They put up a big tree, wrapped the presents they had brought with them, and placed the stockings along the mantel. Their spirits were high, and everyone was feeling festive. The family then went into town to finish up some last-minute Christmas shopping. Sean asked to spend the afternoon and night at his aunt's house, so they dropped him off at Claudia's. He said it was too cold sleeping at the cabin, when in reality, he was just sick of shoveling snow. When Kay, Rolf, Linnea, and Trisha finished up their shopping, they stayed the night at Kay's mom's place. 76-year-old Beth was full of life, even though she'd outlived two husbands and had lost most of her eyesight and mobility in a car accident in 1983. Around noon the next day, Kay, Beth, and Linnea returned to the cabin. It was already the 22nd, and there were still lots to do before the Christmas party. Just then, as Linnea looked towards the house from the driveway, she saw a figure in the window of the master bedroom. She didn't mention it, because she thought it was just her cousin David. She figured he must have arrived early and was waiting to surprise them. As soon as her mother unlocked the front door, Lene bolted up the stairs into the kitchen. As she ran her cold hands under hot water, she thought she saw her cousin David hiding behind the fridge. She laughed to herself and was ready for him to jump out. Unfortunately, the person hiding wasn't Lene's cousin. Out from behind the fridge came a frizzy-haired man in a gray sweatshirt while pointing a pistol at Lene. Understandably, she was terrified. The man then ordered her to call her family upstairs into the house. Kay helped her elderly mother Beth up the stairs. When they got to the top of the stairs, another man with thick Coke bottle glasses appeared out of nowhere and pointed a gun at them. After sitting her mother down on a bar stool, Kay faced the intruders and tried to reason with them. She asked, What is it you want? Why are you here? I'll give you anything. But the two men didn't bother to answer. Seconds later, gunfire rang out, and Lene saw her mom clutch her chest. Kay then shouted out, I've been shot, and fell to the ground in front of the fireplace. When Lene turned back around at her grandmother, she witnessed her getting shot as well, directly in the head. As Beth managed to stand up, she was shot again. Once she'd fallen to the floor, the man with the frizzy hair shot her again, muttering, this bitch won't die. Blood was everywhere and Lene heard her mother and grandmother draw their final breaths. The room fell silent, and she realized they were gone.
She prayed for her grandmother, mother, and herself. But the frizzy-haired man who appeared to be the ringleader told Linne to shut up. Her prayers wouldn't work because he was a devil worshiper. Linne begged the men to call an ambulance, but her pleas went unanswered. Instead, the intruders took Kay and Beth's jewelry and any cash they had on them. The men then dragged Lene into the bedroom and stuffed a dirty sock in her mouth. They secured it with duct tape to muffle her screaming, tying her hands and feet to make sure she couldn't break free. Lene was confused when one of the men showed a glimpse of compassion by bringing the family dog in to comfort her. Nevertheless, she was happy for the company. From the bedroom, Lene heard the two men discussing what to do with the bodies. They eventually decided to drag both Kay and Beth out onto the redwood patio and covered their bodies with blankets of snow. Once back inside, they started to clean up the mess they'd made, but they felt sick from the sight of the blood. Lene even overheard one of the men throwing up. At 2.45 p.m., Lene's heart sunk when she heard the snowmobiles coming up the driveway. Her father and sister had arrived after picking up a snowmobile from the repair shop. The frizzy-haired man pulled Lene to her feet, held his arm around her neck, and pressed his gun tightly against her back. Lene's heart beat even faster when she realized she couldn't even warn her father and sister not to enter the cabin. She was helpless. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As soon as Ralph and Trisha pulled up, a man wearing a ski mask ran towards them from the garage. He pointed his gun at them, ordering them into the cabin. Once the terrified pair were inside the cabin, they were ordered not to move or speak. Rolf looked into Lene's eyes and saw her tears and heartache. This confirmed his worst fears. His wife and mother-in-law had been murdered. The intruders then ordered Ralph to hand over his cash. He reached into his pockets and tossed $105 onto the floor. Before Rolf had a chance to focus, the man who was holding the gun on Lene told the other man to shoot Rolf. The young man managed to cock his gun, but when over 30 seconds passed 
it was clear he couldn't go through with it. The frizzy-haired man then pointed his weapon towards Rolf and pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired. As he pulled the trigger a second time, once again, nothing happened. And on his third try, the gun fired, and Rolf was hit in the face. Trisha wept hysterically and began to jump up and down. Lene wondered to herself if the horrors would ever end. The two men then took gas cans used to fuel the snowmobiles and dumped gasoline all over the cabin. They hoped that the fire would destroy any fingerprints they may have left behind. To make sure Rolf was indeed dead, one of the men decided to shoot him in the back of the head. They then doused Rolf's body with gas. With fire blazing and smoke alarms blaring, the two men loaded up the snowmobiles for their final getaway. But before they made their escape, they grabbed Lene and Trisha to use as human shields. The intruders decided to get the young women to drive the snowmobiles as they sat behind them, holding their guns on each of them, making sure they didn't try to get away. When they finally reached the gate, Lene and Trisha were horrified to see their Uncle Randy was on his way up to the cabin. He called out to them from his truck and waved. He had wondered who the men on the back of the snowmobiles were. Perhaps they were just boyfriends he hadn't heard of. But Randy became really confused when his nieces behaved as if they had no idea who he was. As they drove past Randy, one of the men asked Lene who he was. Without missing a beat, she replied she had no idea. He must be a friendly local. In the end, her quick thinking saved her uncle's life. The foursome then reached the family's Lincoln town car, which had been parked at the garage at the bottom of the property. The women were then forced to enter the key code to open the door. At gunpoint, the men then made Lene and Trisha get into the vehicle. Trisha was in the front passenger seat, beside the frizzy-haired man who was at the wheel, while Lene was forced into the back seat with the other kidnapper. The men then shared their half-baked plan. They confessed that they planned to drive to New York. Once they arrived, the killers would then release Trisha and Lene so they could return home. However, the women seriously doubted they'd be freed, but they had no choice but to go along with the plan. As the Lincoln made its way down the snow-covered road, they came across their Uncle Randy once again. This time, he walked towards the car, waving his hands. He could see his nieces in the vehicle and yelled for them to stop. But like before, the sisters acted as if they had no clue who Randy was. They didn't want him to be killed. Randy watched as his nieces ignored him and left with the two strange men. But just when they thought they were free and clear, a Summit County Sheriff vehicle appeared out of nowhere and followed the getaway car. The men began to panic and sped up. They even ran through a roadblock while attempting to lose the police. 
After hitting speeds of over 90 miles an hour, the chase ended roughly 40 miles southwest of the Titus cabin. The town car eventually spun out of control and went off into an embankment at Lemons Dugway. Before going off the road, the frizzy man said to his accomplice, it's time for us to die now. The man in the backseat disagreed and shouted, no, no. Amazingly, everyone in the vehicle was unharmed. When the Tita sisters looked out of the car towards the top of the embankment, they saw police officers and civilians with their guns aimed at the vehicle. Trisha held Lene's hand and they ducked down, praying they'd make it out of the car alive. After a short exchange of gunfire, the perpetrators were dragged from the vehicle by the police and forced on their knees with their hands behind their heads. The police yelled, get down, down, while Lene screamed at the officers, kill him. They just killed my mom, my dad and my grams. Kill him, shoot him now, kill him. As the killers were taken into custody, Lene and Trisha were shocked that help had arrived so soon, but they were grateful they'd survived their gruesome nightmare. What the sisters hadn't realized was that after they'd sped away from their uncle, he'd been approached by another man on a snowmobile who wasn't wearing a coat, gloves, or helmet. The man's face was battered and his eyes were swollen shut. His head was also covered with bloodsickles. Randy was stunned to discover the man on the snowmobile clinging to life was no other than his brother Rolf. He'd managed to survive the brutal attack by playing dead until he heard the snowmobiles drive off into the distance. The killers had actually shot Rolf with a gun filled with birdshot, which played a large role in his survival. The pellets in birdshot shotgun shells are much smaller than regular buckshot. Regardless, the fact that Rolf was still alive was nothing short of a miracle. When the men left with the girls, Rolf got to his feet and attempted to put out the fires burning inside the cabin. But because he'd also been doused with gasoline, he also caught on fire. But that didn't even face him. He tore off his burning coat, and while heavily bleeding, he continued to fight the fires. Finally, he realized it was too much for him to handle, and he staggered out of the cabin to a snowmobile to go search for his daughters. Rolf told his stunned brother Randy he'd been shot. Kay and her mother had been murdered, and Lene and Trisha had been kidnapped. He managed to say, Save my girls before losing consciousness. Randy carefully lifted his brother up into the back seat and took off down the canyon road in search of the town car. He repeatedly called 911, but service was spotty and he had trouble getting through. When the Tita family vehicle came into view, Randy considered running the car off the road, but suddenly, his phone got cell service. He quickly called 911 and managed to let the dispatcher know his nieces had been kidnapped, along with the location of the vehicle, before losing the connection. 
Randy then pulled into a gas station and called 911 again. When the call was answered, he yelled he needed a helicopter right away to take his injured brother to the hospital. The paramedics on the helicopter discovered Rolf was in critical condition and airlifted him to a hospital where he miraculously pulled through. When his daughters learned of his heroics, they were unsurprised. Trisha said, My whole life, my dad was my hero, and his actions that day just put an exclamation point on that. Lene agreed. She said her dad was the most amazing hero she'd ever known. Although police had little doubt about who the killers were, the investigation into what exactly had happened at the Tita cabin continued. When investigators searched the home, they found pools of blood, blood spatter, walls riddled with bullet holes, and Kay and Beth's lifeless bodies on the deck. One of the officers said the crime scene looked like a mini war zone. Police determined that the two men they had in their custody were 26-year-old Von L. Taylor and 22-year-old Edward S. Deli. Taylor was the frizzy-haired leader, and Deli was the co-conspirator with the Coke bottle glasses. The young men were no strangers to the law. They both previously served time at the Utah State Penitentiary. Taylor for aggravated burglary, and Deli for arson. But little is known why the two young men had decided to escalate from burglary and arson to murder. After their release from prison, the two men met while staying at a halfway house. The placement was supposed to give them an opportunity to seek employment while integrating back into society. On December 14th, Taylor and Deli walked away from the halfway house and hitchhiked their way to Oakley, Utah, where they spent a week burglarizing homes. They chose Oakley because Taylor's father owned a cabin in the area. In fact, Taylor was the unsettling stranger that Kay, Sean, and Claudia had passed while en route to the cabin on December 20th. The convicts staked out the Tita family and watched while they headed into town on December 21st to finish up their Christmas shopping. The men then broke into the cabin, showered, and put on Rolf's clothing that they found in one of the closets. They prepared and ate food and napped on the family's beds. Then, they patiently waited for the Titas to return so they could rob them and steal their car. Taylor and Deli had planned to get out of the area before being arrested for their string of burglaries. Chillingly, while going over the crime scene, investigators found a video camera that contained a tape. The men had recorded their time in the cabin. In fact, Deli filmed Taylor unwrapping the family's Christmas presents. The video showed the men calling out which family member each gift was intended for as Taylor gleefully tore them open. While they chatted and joked about the gifts, they focused on an album of baseball and football trading cards. When Lene learned about the video, she was in disbelief 
at the pure malice and hate in the two men's hearts. After the tragic events, Aunt Claudia stepped up and made sure that the Titas knew they weren't alone. Claudia knew she could never fill their mother's place, but she did everything in her power to help Lene, Trisha, and their brother Sean recover from the trauma of losing a parent and grandparent so violently. The Titas had a double funeral for Kay and her mother Beth. On Friday, December 28th at noon, hundreds of mourners paid their respects and offered support. Speakers at the funeral said that although the women's lives were cut short, they were angels. Their good deeds, love of family, and strong faith would influence others for years to come. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On January 22nd, 1991, Taylor and Delhi were arraigned before Third District Judge Frank Noel. Both were charged with two counts of first degree murder, one count of attempted first degree murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping as well as aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to heed a police signal to stop. If found guilty, both men could face the death penalty. At first, Taylor and Deli both pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but after undergoing a court-ordered evaluation, the men were found legally sane and fit to stand trial. Their lawyers then attempted to have the accused tried separately and the trials moved outside of Summit County, but Judge Noel dismissed both requests. Five months later, Taylor pleaded guilty to both counts of capital murder in return for the state dropping all other charges. During the sentencing hearing, prosecution argued Taylor was a cold-blooded killer who murdered people without provocation or remorse. The forensic evidence and witness testimony seemed to support the state's claim that Taylor was responsible for killing both women. Medical examiner Dr. Sharon Schnitger testified that Kay had been shot five times, twice in the chest, once on the side, once on the shoulder, and once in the upper arm. She said the fatal shot was the bullet that entered Kay's shoulder and went through her internal organs. The bullet was a 44 caliber, which matched the gun witnesses saw Taylor use on the day of the crime. Beth had been shot three times, once in the head 
and twice in the chest. The fatal shot had been the one to her head, which was also caused by the 44, believed to have been used by Taylor. A number of other witnesses testified during the sentencing hearing, including the surviving members of the Tita family. Still bearing visible scars from his ordeal, Rolf took to the stand and described all he had endured. Lene also testified about the horrors her family had experienced. She explained how Taylor shot her mother and grandmother without any provocation. Trisha told the jury how she witnessed Taylor shoot her father for no reason within minutes of arriving home. Taylor testified in his own defense, but his argumentative nature, convenient memory lapses, and lack of remorse did him no favors. Elliot Levine, Taylor's attorney, told the jury that there was no doubt the crimes were heinous, but stressed that Taylor had pleaded guilty and was willing to accept the consequences. In his opinion, he didn't feel Taylor deserved the death penalty and asked the jury to sentence his client to life in prison. The seven-man, five-women jury was unconvinced and after a short deliberation handed down death sentences to Taylor for each of the murders. Lene was relieved when she heard the verdict. She felt justice had been served. The man who'd murdered her mother and grandmother and terrorized her family was going to be put to death by lethal injection. Unlike Taylor, Deli decided to take his chances and go to trial. Two weeks after Taylor was sentenced, the Tita family was back in court reliving the nightmare they'd experienced on that fateful day in December. Prosecutor Robert Atkins painted a picture for the jury of Delhi as a remorseless killer who deserved the death penalty, even if he wasn't the trigger man. But Delhi's lawyer Martin Gravis countered that Taylor was the ringleader who did all the killing. Delhi just unfortunately befriended the wrong man at the halfway house. The defense lawyer grilled the Tita sisters and Rolf during his cross-examination. He questioned if they really had saw Deli kill anyone. He argued that his client wasn't an evil person. He'd refused to kill Rolf when Taylor had ordered him to, and he'd moved Linnae to the bedroom after her mother and grandmother were killed to protect her from Taylor. And also, he'd brought the family dog to comfort her. After deliberating for 12 and a half hours, the jury returned a verdict of second-degree murder. The prosecutors and the Tita family were stunned. Lene felt like the verdict was an injustice to her family. She thought Deli deserved to be put to death like Taylor. She felt both men were killers and should receive the same punishment. Trisha agreed and said she wanted both men to be sentenced to death. She wanted both of them to know they were going to die. Instead, the family had to come to terms with the fact that the death penalty for Delhi was off the table. On May of 1991, jury foreperson Tamara Martinez explained that there had been one holdout on the jury 
who didn't think the prosecution had presented a convincing case that Delhi was responsible for the murders. Instead of failing to come to a decision and subjecting the Tita family to yet another trial, the frustrated jury compromised and convicted Delhi of the lesser offense. Delhi showed little reaction when the verdict was read, but his lawyer considered the verdict a victory. Delhi's life was spared, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. To this day, Taylor and Delhi remain behind bars. The Tita family has been grappling with the terrifying events that occurred on December 22, 1990, for years. Shortly after Taylor and Delhi were jailed for their crimes, the Titas filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state for the murders of Kay and Beth. Rolf told reporters the civil case wasn't about financial gain. He believed that the only way to get the state to see the error of its ways was to go for its money. He explained that if you get in their pocketbook, you get their attention and maybe things will change. Rolf said that the death of his wife and mother-in-law was a tragedy that could have been totally prevented, but the state did nothing to protect my family. The suit claimed that the Department of Corrections played a key role in Kay and Beth's deaths because the authorities failed to capture Taylor and Delhi, even though they were made aware of the pair's whereabouts. The Tita's attorney, Alan Young, told the court that on December 22nd, Taylor called Scott Manley, a person staying at the halfway house during the time frame of the crime. Taylor told Manley that he and Delhi had been breaking into cabins in the Oakley area and had stolen guns. He also said that they were waiting at the Tita's cabin for the family to return. He outlined how he was going to waste the parents and their son steal their vehicle, and kidnap the daughters to use as shields for their trip to New York. Although Manley immediately reported his conversation with Taylor to the halfway house officials, the state failed to apprehend the convicts before they murdered Kay and Beth. Young told 3rd District Court Judge Frank Noel, if there is ever a case where justice requires the state to be accountable for its slovenly conduct, it's this case. In September of 1992, Judge Noel ruled that the state of Utah couldn't be held liable for the murders committed by Taylor and Delhi and dismissed the case because Utah state law shielded the government from liability. The judge said, it's clear that the Tita family has suffered much as the results of the actions of Taylor and Delhi. The legislature, however, has granted specific immunity to the state of Utah for such actions, and therefore, the court has no choice but to grant the defendant's motion to dismiss. After the dismissal of the suit, the Tita family did its best to heal and move forward. But it wasn't easy to do. Testifying at Taylor and Delhi's trials had come at a great emotional cost for the sisters. Looking back, Trisha said the trials were a blur. She was young and just wanted to get on with life, not endlessly relive a nightmare.
Patricia felt angry and frustrated for years and spent over a decade hiding her pain. Linnae, who was 20 at the time she testified, was traumatized by the experience. She found it very difficult to hold one of the murder weapons in her hands while she was on the stand. She said it wasn't helpful for a victim to have to hold a weapon that they watched their family murdered with. Lene was left wondering if happiness existed and was terrified to love anyone out of fear that they would abandon her. Then, in 2001, Lene received a letter from Delhi. She reread it dozens of times, but it took her almost 10 years to reply. Delhi wrote that he'd changed. He was not the same evil boy Lene had encountered that December day at the cabin. He wrote that he was sorry for all the pain he'd caused her family. Lene eventually responded and forgave Delhi. She believes this helped her gain back her freedom. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rolf was married three times after Kay's murder. He finally found happiness again during his last marriage to his late wife's best friend. Donna. The couple shared many special years together, and Rolf loved spending time with his family and grandchildren until he died from cancer in 2008, his children by his side. Trisha is the divorced mother of two girls. She told reporters she finds solace in her children because when she looks into their eyes, she sees both her mother and father and everything that's loving and pure. She said, I have an awesome life. I love my life now. And I wouldn't say that the incident in 1990 defines me, but I would say it's helped make me who I am today. Sean married and is the proud father of three boys. He's kind and supportive and lets his children know he's always there for them. He followed in his father's footsteps and has made a good living as a salesman. After Lene's first marriage ended in divorce, she married her childhood sweetheart, a man by the name of Nathan Coates. She said, life with Nathan has changed her. It was a new beginning. Nathan opened her heart, which gave him the freedom to do the same. Lene and Nathan blended their families and now have nine children together. 
Lene reflected. She said that becoming a survivor is a beautiful gift that she can now share with others. Delhi seems to have accepted his fate. He hasn't appealed his sentence, even though he'd likely never be paroled. Taylor, on the other hand, has repeatedly appealed his sentence. In one of his many appeals, his lawyers argued that his trial was unfair because the jury was 75% Mormon. That appeal, like all the others before it, was struck down. Taylor, however, was given a glimpse of hope in early of 2019. A United States District Court judge ruled that despite his guilty plea and likely being an accomplice, the evidence hadn't indicated beyond a reasonable doubt that K.N. Beth died from bullets fired from his gun. As a result, the court declared Taylor innocent. Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson explained that the ruling doesn't send Mr. Taylor home or even give him a new trial, but will delay his execution. Peterson said, the decision disregards Utah accomplice liability law, Taylor's multiple confessions, and most distressingly, the feelings of the victim's family who have pleaded for speedy justice. The state of Utah maintains that Taylor is not innocent at all and is currently preparing for a new phase of prolonged litigation. The state won't rest until the case is closed once and for all and the Tita family has received the justice they deserve. Although burdened by Taylor's recent legal maneuverings, the Titas managed to find solace in the very place their nightmare began. After the cabin had been ravaged by fire, the family pulled together and rebuilt their country escape. They consider it now to be even better than it was before. For years since the horrific event, Lene, Sean, and Trisha have spent a lot of time up at the cabin, enjoying each other's company, playing with their children, and reconnecting with their aunts, uncles, cousins, as well as close friends. The family continues to cherish their time together at the Tita's Tranquility Cabin. They won't allow the horrific events of one fateful evening to cast a shadow on the memories they wish to continue to build with their family. In doing so, they've managed to turn what was once a site of unbearable pain into a magical place of healing and family tradition. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Steffi, Jenny W., 
Cherish B, and a special heartfelt thanks to Rick from Kobo Sound. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.